When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up today, we listen back to a live Intelligence Squared event staged last year with the American author and scholar Eddie Glaude. He joined us to discuss the life and legacy of James Baldwin, the writer whose work during the latter 20th century across novels, essays, plays and poems has come to be regarded as some of the most culturally important in defining the character of the modern USA and its uneasy relationship with race and multiculturalism. Glaude's book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own, was published in 2021. Joining Glaude in conversation is Christiana Fryer, the historian of modern Britain and author of Entangled Lands, A Caribbean History of Britain. So do look out for that coming soon. Let's join Christiana now with more. Professor Eddie S. Glaude Jr. is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. He is a highly respected scholar of religion and a prominent public intellectual. He frequently appears in the media as a columnist for Time Magazine and as an MSNBC contributor. He also regularly appears on Sunday mornings Meet the Press. Professor Glaude is an author of numerous books, and his latest is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Today. And this is the subject of our conversation tonight. Eddie, welcome. It's really great to speak with you this evening. It's a pleasure to be with you, Christina. Thank you so much. So, Eddie, um, what drew you to James Baldwin? Oh, it's such a difficult question. Well, first of all, let me just thank Hannah and all of the folks behind the scenes who are making this event possible. Uh, we have to give uh, uh, you know a shout out to the invisible labor that makes these virtual events uh, happen. So, I want to thank Intelligence Squared and all the folks who have done who've worked hard to to allow us to have this conversation. Baldwin, why? In some ways, he gave me a language to make sense of myself, um, the rage that threatened to overwhelm. He also helped me understand, I think, the American contradiction, the madness that's at the heart, the center of this fragile experiment, as it were. It took me a while to turn to him, though, because I knew what he was going to demand of me. 
So I didn't start reading Baldwin until late, right? I didn't read him very much in college. Um, I tried to avoid him in high in in in, in graduate school uh, because I didn't want to deal with what he caused. He, you know, he caused among my colleagues red cheeks, flushed faces, and I didn't want to have to manage that. And the last thing is I didn't want to have to deal with what he was going to ask of me. And so I didn't start reading him intensely until I became a professor at Bowdoin College in Maine. And there everything just exploded. He became a central muse for how I, re- how I encountered pragmatism, how I thought about uh, the American experiment, and how I think about the question of race and democracy in some ways. And you're not the only person who has come to uh, Baldwin late. I too uh, came to to Baldwin late for for some of the same the same reasons. Uh, but once he grabs you, <laughs> you are there, um, and and uh, all that he demands of you, you have to you have to do. So your book, Begin Again, uh, combines biography, memoir, literary criticism, history, and in my mind, sort of the best kind of polemic. Um, why write about Baldwin in this way? rather than through more traditional biography? That's a great question. I mean, in so many ways, it's very... Baldwin's papers are embargoed for the next 30 years, for most of them are. So we're not going to get that definitive biography until those papers are available to us. So initially, I wanted to write an intellectual biography, right? Where I would, where, where I would just go through my favorite nonfiction and kind of engage with, with those works. Um, and the archive just wasn't giving me much. I was going to repeat some things. I wasn't saying much that would be new. And then there was all of this stuff happening in the context of the U.S. and Black Lives Matter. There was um, Ferguson. There was Baltimore. All of this, Trayvon Mar. all of this stuff was happening. And um, I knew I needed to say something about the moment. And it wasn't until I was in Heidelberg. You know, I had signed the contract for the book. I knew I had to write something. Everybody was saying, where is it? I didn't know where it was. And um, I was in Heidelberg as I write in the book. And I saw the police. I wasn't in Heidelberg. They all shot for an hour. And I saw police with a black man on the ground screaming at the top of his lungs. And I knew I had to write about it. The one thing I knew I didn't have to do was to go on television and talk about it. So I went back to my flat and I wrote what became, in effect, the introduction to the book. I knew I had a hook, that I wasn't going to write about Jimmy. I was going to write with him because he lived through a moment of betrayal and I was living through a moment of betrayal. So I wanted to return to what he calls his ruins, to find resources, to mind his, his work, his, his writing, his speeches to find resources to speak to our own moment. And so I always tell myself, I joke, I ran from the chaos of Trump, of Trumpism, until the, in, into the uh, disaster that was Jimmy's life. And uh, it was a fascinating journey, which I barely survived. So there are a few um, ideas that you return to in the book that probably we will return to in this conversation. I want to pick up on two of them. Um, the first actually just picks up on what you were uh, what you were mentioning this this moment that we're in uh, because you call Baldwin a critic of the aftertimes. What are the aftertimes? Yeah, I get the phrase from uh, Walt Whitman's Democratic Vistas when Whitman is writing in the aftermath of the carnage of the American Civil War, and he's witnessing 
the, go- the Gilded Age takes shape, greed, overrunning values, right? Democracy seeming to be beholden to selfishness and the like. So there's a world that has collapsed or is collapsing and a world that is trying to come into being. And so the aftertimes is that moment, that interregnum, that moment betwixt and between, when something is dying and something is trying to be born. And Baldwin was a writer of the, in his aftertime, of, of his aftertimes, the moment in which the promises of the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century, the hopes of the black power movement were being dashed uh, as Ronald Reagan was ascending from the governor's house in California to the White House in D.C. in 1980. And for many of us who are students of American history, we, we failed to remember that Ronald Reagan was as notorious for for members of the Black Power Movement, as George Wallace was for members of the Civil Rights Movement. So the idea that Reagan was elected sealed the fate. It was the last nail in the coffin of the possibility of genuine transformation in the country. And so Baldwin was alive. He was alive for another seven years. Uh, And he saw what was on the horizon. In his book, the book that's at the core of, of Begin Again is No Name in the Street, published in 1972, he sees what the country is doing, um, and he's trying his best as a witness, as a poet in the Emersonian sense, to bear witness to what is happening. So that's why I call him a critic of, his, of, of, of the aftertimes, and I think we are too, in a certain sort of way. The promise, the possibility that was the election of Barack Obama right, has, has collapsed right in front of us. And in fact... The promise of Black Lives Matter has collapsed right in front of us. So we're living today in the United States, and I suspect around the Western world, in a, even as Russia threatens right, Ukraine and threatens the West, we're living in a moment of betrayal, it seems to me. And when do you, when do you think that, that the current aftertimes that we're living in began? Is it after Obama or is it, or is it the election of Barack Obama? I think it it very well may be during his administration, right? I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates writes that Obama was, you know, you know how he figures Obama as the last, the first black, last black president, however he describes it. And then, you know, we get, we get Donald, we get Trumpism. And, you know, you know the late Joan Didion talks about American politics as being prone to melodrama, where we look for, you know, these, you know, villainous personalities. And we think if we only banish the villain, we will be just fine. But Trump was and remains a symptom of a much more uh, deeper and critical illness, it seems to me, or or rot, to use a different kind of image. Uh, and so the election of Trump signaled once again, right, the secession of any possibility that this place uh, was in the process of thinking of itself otherwise. So I, w- I will certainly uh, I want us to get back to Trump and Trumpism because there's so much that you uh, have to say in the book uh, about that particular moment. Um, but there's also a mm. second um, concept in the book that is um, both central to the book and also central to American life. And it is this idea of uh, the lie. What is the lie? Yeah, the, the lie is this story that Americans tell themselves that we are, in fact, the shining city on the hill an example of democracy achieved, the Redeemer nation. And we we put forward those descriptions over and against the reality of who we are. Um, You know, Baldwin put it this way in an essay, 
entitled The White Problem, I think written in 1964, where he says the people who founded the nation, founded what would become America, had a problem, right? They, they took themselves to be, in effect, to be Christian, to be founding this thing, and they, but they had to come to terms with this, the chattel, these, these human beings that they held as property. And the way they came to terms with it, Baldwin suggests, is that they had to say that these human beings were not, in fact, men and women. And then he says, and I'm quoting him here, that lie is the basis of our present trouble. And so there's this sense in which America, uh, and you know, if those of us who've read our Foucault and the madness and civilization or the history of madness, we know that there's an understanding of madness before it's understood in a clinical sense of being at least one version of a kind of living in an illusion, right? That illusion that keeps us away at, at arm's distance from the reality of who we are. And, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill explored the need, you know, the dangers, the damage of that illusion and the madness that follows from it. So America is constantly trying to avoid looking itself squarely in the face, that slavery, its brutality, its cruelty, right? What it has said and what it has done vis-a-vis -vis these black folk is actually constitutive of who the nation is. I use this kind of, it's an apocryphal story, but I use this story all the time of, of John Adams telling King George, we will not be your Negroes. That at the very moment in which freedom is being voiced in the country, it is predicated upon an intimate understanding of unfreedom, you see. And so that lie, and Frederick Douglass talks about it, Martin King talks about it, before King, Du Bois talked about it, Ida B. Wells tried to uh, expose it in the red record. Anna Julia Cooper, the lie has been at the heart of America's self-conception. And we see the reassertion of that lie, we'll get to this, in real time right now with the debates around critical race theory, the debates around 1619 Project, a refusal to look the facts of who we are squarely in the face, just as the British Empire. And its children. And we will get to that. To <laughs> refuse to look look itself squarely in the face and what it has done and what it and what that doing means for its own self-conception, if that makes sense. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I'm very much looking forward to, to getting to digging into into those <laughs> questions, but I feel like we have to talk a little bit about the sure. book, its structure, um, and and also about Baldwin's Baldwin's life uh, uh, and his writing. Um, so, as I see the book, it's it's structured um, around a series of parallels. There's a parallel between Baldwin's writing career and the political moments that he lived through, and then there's a bald, there's a parallel between his time and ours. And you suggest that his writings can serve. Uh, as a guide. Um, so I kind of want to take these in turn. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Baldwin's writing reflected and in particular responded to the changing political situations that he witnessed? Sure. So you can imagine, you know, the title of the book comes from his last novel, Just Above My Head. Right? And there's this moment in the novel where, you know, there's a kind of accounting of what has happened in the context of the 60s revolution. And, you know, some lost their minds, some left the country, some went to jail, some died. But then he says, responsibility is not abdicate, you know, responsibility is not lost, is, is abdicated. And if one refuses abdication, then one begins again. So Baldwin is writing in a moment where he sees the collapse of this extraordinary effort at kind of living up to the to the ideals, the principles of American democracy, or to put it more accurately, of imagining America differently. And he sees the nation literally turn its back. What is the response of America to the assassination of Dr. King? It's to elect Richard Nixon twice. What's the response to the movement? It's the call for law and order, which puts in place the elements that would become the carceral state. It's the tax revolt in California, which leads to the shredding of the social safety net as white America abdicates, right? Uh, it kind of abandons the public sphere as it's being desegregated, right? And then cries foul because as they abandon it, they don't want their tax money to continue to pay for it, right? And so Baldwin is trying to give an account of what it means to confront the betrayal and to still have to struggle. What does it mean to muster the energy to push the damn boulder up the hill again? How do we respond to white America doing it again? So here I am, right? Writing in a moment that young people across the country have, are putting their lives on the line and the country's response is the election of Donald Trump. In a moment when activists in Ferguson are showing up dead, they're saying that they're being lent, that, they, that they're committing suicide, but they're showing up dead in their cars, showing up dead under trees and the like. And I kept saying to myself, they've done it again. They're doing it again. How do I find the resources to speak to the moment and to act. It's the same question that Baldwin was grappling with. 
in the face of the collapse that he experienced. And in some ways, Christina, it's the same question that Douglas, Frederick Douglass, who lived long enough to see Abraham Lincoln sign the Emancipation Proclamation and the 15th Amendment ratified, but lives long enough to see the states of Mississippi and Tennessee pass the first Jim Crow laws. How do you find the resources to continue to struggle for a more just America, for a better America, for a different America, when it seems as if these folk won't change? that they're committed to this thing. So let's actually turn then to, to Black Lives Matter because there's, you, you mentioned Black Lives Matter in the book um, and there have been some developments mm. in terms of Black Lives Matter since, since the book was, was published. Um, what resources, to use the word, that, to, to use the phrase that you were using, what resources does Baldwin offer us, uh, and in particular offer the activists of Black Lives Matter? Well, you know, I think there's this kind of insistence on a certain kind of maturity. Right. There's, there's, Baldwin wants to insist, and I want to use that verb again, that we not lose sight of the moral component of the argument. Because at the heart of, of our activism is the question of who do we take ourselves to be? And that question is bound up with character formation, right? So we can't lose sight of the moral question. Baldwin was making this point to, to black power activists who thought that power was the only thing. And he was trying, no, 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 no. Who you take yourselves to be matters, as he said as in his resignation uh, from the liberator, as it was being accused of semitism, anti-Semitism. He said, I want us to do something unprecedented, to create a self without a need for enemies. That formulation right, is a lesson to be learned. Also, Baldwin's corpus is, in effect, a kind of queering of black politics, right? A, a queering of black politics, not so much in terms of the fact that he's this queer black man, but rather this insistence that we call into question hypermasculinity, that we call into question a certain kind of complicity with the operations of power, that we give voice to those, to the least of these, those who are often seen on the margins of black life are now centered in the way in which we conceive of our politics, you see. So Baldwin is is, is asking for a different kind of politics that's not bound up by, with the, the, the masculinist discourse of black preachers that we tend to associate the movement with. And then lastly, I would say, um, there is this uh, uh, insistence, and I mentioned it earlier, that we grow up. There's a kind of how can I put this? The world as it is, is a reflection of the messiness of who we are individually. And so if you're going to do anything to try to, if you're going to say anything about the world, first you got to deal with the messiness of who you are. So Baldwin is thinking about race and democracy in this very intimate and complex way that I think offers these activists uh, languages, resources to imagine black politics differently. That's why he was everywhere. It was almost as if we finally caught up with him. So he is, in, in particular, there, there's some sections in the book where you're talking about his relationship to, uh, the, to the black power movement, both as he sort of understands its necessity, but is somewhat worried about 
um, as you say, sort of losing the, the moral argument. Yet at the same time, at that same moment, he is also beginning to um, abandon the sense that it is our job as Black people to get white people correct. So with this, I want to turn, I want to, turn to Trump and Trumpism. Uh, and in particular, that moment, so, you know, I was, yeah, I yeah. Uh, <laughs> moved to uh, Britain in 2017. I actually decided to move before the election of Trump. So it was, it was not quite as, as tied to that. But, you know, from Britain, I was watching all of this coverage about um, the lost white voter and, you know, the, the, uh, middle, you know, the middle American voter who is going to be permanently lost to, to the Democrats, the, um, the neo-Nazis who were eating tacos in, in Ohio, all of that stuff that was really focused on um, presumably fixing some or, or retrieving some group of people as opposed to uh, concern about Black Americans or in particular uh, the, uh, Latino, um, the Latino migrants who were in, in cages at the border. Um, what mm. does Baldwin, do you think, have to say, or would he have to say to that move after the election of Trump to focus on the white voter as opposed to uh, the people uh, the people in in harm's way? Well, I mean, it's 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 the myth. It's the illusion reasserting itself. It's the lie reasserting itself. This idea that, America must remain a white nation in the vein of old Europe. Remember, there's a kind of terror and panic at the heart of it all, right? It's not just simply the election of the first black president. It's that mattered, right? But that's a reflect that that's a consequence of the demographic shifts that are taking place in the United States. The browning of America is not something that's in the, the distant future. It's happening right now in places like Texas and Georgia and North Carolina. And we're seeing the mechanisms of government, right, deployed in order to arrest the political implications of those demographic shifts. So when Charlottesville happened and those neo-Nazis were screaming, Jews will not replace us, they were playing on the kind of ambig ambiguity, Jews, you will not replace us. And so there is this sense in which uh, Trumpism is this reassertion of the idea that America must remain white. And then there is, there's always, Christine, in the, in the U.S. at least, this, this toxic combination of the loud racist with the moderate white liberal who doesn't want to go too far. And those two combine to arrest change, you see. And so I've always argued that part of the, the challenge for us is to decenter the cisgendered white working class male and imagine American politics differently. And every time I say decenter, they think I mean dismiss. And there's a difference between decentering and dis dismissing, you see, because the Democratic Party in the United States is like a forlorn, a forlorn lover. They're constantly seeking the adoration, the attention of the so-called Reagan Democrat. And they will turn over, they will do, they will twist themselves into knots to try to attract the attention of this particular voter. When at the same time, it is black voters, brown voters, women, some women, young voters, right? Some poor vote who are putting them into in office, you see. And I think we, you know, what we saw in this moment that elected Trump was the reassertion of the lie. 
right? That ours must be a white nation. And then those who seemingly are, how can I put this, given that Gray and Fukuyama are talking soon, those who are seemingly liberal, conceding to that assumption in their actions and not their words, if that makes sense. It does, it does. Um, so James Baldwin spent much of his life, and, and this is a well-known aspect of his life, moving between the United States and Europe, uh, and in particular, mm -hmm. uh, France and Paris, uh, and then also uh, mm -hmm. to Turkey, which I did not know about prior to, uh, to reading this book. So how did that time, and he spent quite a lot of time outside of the U.S., how did that time shape his writing about the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it gave him the distance, the requisite distance. I mean, you could imagine what Baldwin's second book published in, what, 1958, is Giovanni's Room. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. So he's out in the 1950s. So he's this black, queer man writing about race in the most trenchant way, right? having to deal with the fact that, that, that America is explicitly racist in its organization, having to deal with the daily cuts, and having to also to deal with fame, right? Needing the time to write, but also having to deal with the fact that he's a black queer man in the United States in the 1950s and 60s, right? So he needs the space right, and the time to think about the country. He left America in 1948, and he says uh, in The Price of the Ticket that if I didn't leave the country, either I would have been killed or somebody would have killed me. Because he knew what was happening inside of him. The very anger that he saw in his stepfather, his father, was in him. And that he needed to find a way to render that anger, that rage, right? And in some ways to temper it with love. And so London, you know, he writes, he finishes, tell me, you know, tell me how long the trains have been gone. And at Ted Tedworth Square in London, he finishes his essay on Stokely Carmichael in the same apartment building, in the same flat, right, um, on Black Power. Uh, he he found himself in a kibbutz in Israel, uh, finished parts of, of of Fire Next Time there, right? He was in Istanbul a couple of on a couple of occasions, finished another country there, right? He finished No Name in the Street there. Um, and of course, he dies in St. Paul de Vence uh, in France, right? Where he was had the welcome table, as it were, in thinking about these matters. So he's an internationalist, a transcontinental commuter, but he was never in exile. Because all of these places were purchased from which to think about the U.S. without the burden of having to navigate this place or having to explain it to people or having to, as Adolf Reed once said, to have to interpret the drums to people who don't quite understand them. It's, it's, it's a bit much. And so you say in part because of that, that actually we all, uh, especially those of us who, who you know, are living in the U.S., who are facing the brunt of uh, of the oppressions in the U.S. that we all need our own other place, our own elsewhere. But at the same time, we can't all travel. Uh, travel is a lot of the places that were hospitable to him in the 1960s are probably less hospitable now, um, <laughs> to put yeah. it mildly. Um, so what becomes our elsewhere if we are not actually able to physically leave the U.S. or wherever it is that we might be you know, living? I get it's really fascinating for those of you who are interested in that chapter. You know, that chapter is really an ongoing conversation that I'm having with uh, uh, Edward Said, the late critic, uh, and his work, Representations of the Intellectual, and the political theorist uh, Michael Walzer, right, and his work on, um, 
on social criticism and uh, and then and intellectuals and social criticism. So I'm trying to figure out how to navigate these two figures. Uh, I Said the Palestinian um, and Walzer the Jew, who's kind of grappling with this uh, in light of real world political uh, uh, matters. So how do we do it? Well, the one thing we have to do is to is to revel in communities of love. People who allow us to laugh full belly laughs, to shout at the top of our lungs when it seems as if the world has overrun and overwhelmed. People who will steal your spine because your knees have buckled, who will tell you the truth about yourself, even though you might not want to hear it, but who love you unconditionally. There are moments when Baldwin's in, if you ever watched the short film Another Place by Sadat Piquet, there's this there's this moment he's standing on the balcony looking out and he turns around and his brow is furled and then he explodes into this extraordinary smile. And it's just, you know, amazing to see. And so who will allow us uh, to cry, to weep, to smile, to belt out, you know, uncontrollable laughter? Because that's replenishing. And in the second form, the second way of it, establishing it elsewhere is to acquire the requisite distance from the operations of power. And this is me listening to Walzer and Said, right? And that is that you, when you find yourself up close to it, you're constantly grappling with uh, the temptation to take the bribe, right? To be a mouthpiece for those who are, who are, uh, uh, who are actually engaged in behavior that run contrary to your commitments, to your values. So how do you acquire the requisite distance from the operations of power? Well, you identify with the least of these and apprentice yourself to organizations that are doing work on behalf of the least of these. And then they can replenish you as you see the operations of power in their ugliest form, you see. So first, we've got to be loved and loved you know, intensely and intentionally. And then we have to fight, fight, right, with people who are like-minded and like-hearted. Uh, and that will give us the space to replenish, because it's a long-distance run. Because if you think you're sprinting out here, you won't last long in this fight. Absolutely not. Um, the subtitle or the UK t subtitle, I learned uh, earlier that there are two different subtitles. So the UK subtitle of the book is James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Today. And as I was reading the book, what struck me is that we are in such a different version of today than when you were writing the book. Um, so this was published uh, in the UK in uh, 2021, uh, but you finished writing it in, in uh, 2020. And since then, there's been a pandemic. Uh, there has been the uh, murder of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, we have seen a new president, and of course, we are now in the middle of a new uh, of a new war. And yet, the sense I got is that your diagnosis of what's necessary, and then Baldwin's diagnosis of what's necessary, hasn't necessarily changed that much. So, how do you see this new moment in light of what you argue in the book? You know, that's that's such a prescient. Um, uh, analysis because you know when the UK edition was coming out they wanted me to do should we write something different I was like I don't think so right I don't know you know what we see is 
you know, there's something going on in the world right now with Ukraine and Russia. I haven't said this publicly before, but it feels as if there's a battle to reconsolidate global whiteness in the midst of this. Russia is, has been at the center of a certain kind of global white nationalism for the longest. You know, it has been a part of this, um, at least in the U.S., the object of a certain kind of desire of white nationalist organizations, right? And we know in Ukraine that there is, Ukraine is a kind of global hub of neo-Nazism in interesting sorts of ways. And so when Orban comes out to defend, to defend uh, Ukraine against Russia, you get confused. What are these elements doing? Who's battling what? And then you see what's happening to black students and brown students on the borders. And you see the, you know, in the midst of the cruelty and barbarity of war, race still working itself out. And you still see, right, and you hear uh, parliamentarians in Spain differentiating refugees from Syria, from refugees from the Ukraine. We see the coverage in the United States where Ukraine represents freedom and da 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 And you say, well, what about those people who stood in line for eight, nine, 12 hours to vote? What do they represent, right? There is a sense in which in this moment where the pandemic has ravaged and raged in communities of color, right, decimating communities of color in the United States, when the police has, have responded in the U.S. to defunding claims, to and defunding claims were all about distribution, right, budgeting, you know, redistributing, um, redistributing, uh, monies in terms more to education, more to social services, less to carceral carcerality. Now we have the same rhetoric that was at the heart of calls for law and order in the 80s circulating as and even the president of the United States in his state of the union claiming for more money for the police when in 2020, 2021, police killed more people in 2021 than they did in 2020 in the United States. Right. You think about that in the context of the debate over immigration in Britain, right? How does Windrush work in this moment? How is it feeding into a certain conception or idea of what Britishness can, entails? Who actually falls under the Union Jack? What is, being, what is being articulated in these moments? For Baldwin and for me, it's a refusal to grow the hell up. It's an insistence on clinging to the myth of that this, in the U.S. context at least, is and must remain a white nation and willing to throw the entire experiment away on behalf of it all. So in that sense, what I call for at the end of Begin Again still holds, still obtains. So I want, by way of my last question, then we'll open up to uh, the audience Q&A. I want to return to the lie. Um, because this is a book about the United States. Um, we, you know, we are both Americans, um, although I happen to live in Britain uh, and I study uh, British slavery uh, and Britain's slavery and emancipation past and teach black British history. So I am quite conscious of three things. First, that Britain has its own set of lies around uh, slavery and race in Britain. Uh, two, that 
um, at least the way I would see it, is that actually so much more of that history is hidden in public, in British public discourse than in the U.S. Uh, and that three, that actually the U.S. functions in this discourse as the in, in Britain as a place in the world where, where race matters. And so it's something that, you know, in, in a lot of British discourse, there's a sense that we don't actually have to discuss it here. So I'm wondering how might Baldwin's work, which is itself so deeply American in its orientation, how might it be a guide for people outside of the U.S. who are nonetheless living in countries that find it impossible or difficult to face and repair uh, the legacies of slavery, colonialism, and racism? Well, you know, I think that the heart of of Baldwin's, you know, corpus, right, is 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 at least two things, right? Are two are two things, right? One one is what I call his inversion. And that is, the problem isn't us. It never has been. Right? And he said this in London, right, to students. You know, I've, I've never thought of myself as the N-word. The question is, why do you need the N-word in the first place? And until you figure that out, until you confront it, whether it's in the context of the British Caribbean, whether it's in the context of, 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 of the subcontinent of India, the, the legacies of empire are rooted in a certain conception of who uh, white Britons take themselves to be. The same thing is in, in the context of the U.S., right? So that inversion is to say that, that, you know, the problem isn't here, never has been. Then the second move is, is, is actually a reflection of the first. And that is, you know, reparations, reconciliation, truth, truth and reconciliation. All of this is sequential, to use Brian Stevenson's words. First, you got to tell yourself the truth, which sets the stage for reconciliation, which puts in place the conditions for repair. If you refuse to tell yourself the truth, tell, tell yourselves the truth, then you're permanently docked in the station. And I've been grappling with this in my new book. What does it mean to embrace, embrace a kind of perfectionist impulse, a kind of assumption that one is on the way to a higher self or a more perfect union, but yet committed to the madness of a lie? Right? It's like saying that, you know, it's like a lie that's at the heart of a marriage, right? A relationship, and you're trying to fix it, but you refuse to confront the lie that's at the center of it all. Oh, then your, your efforts are doomed. By definition, it seems to me. So those two moments, what do we have to learn? It requires a certain kind of emotional maturity to confront the truth of who you are, of who we are. And I think that deep exploration, to use Baldwin's language, of doing one's first works over, coming from the book of Revelations, right? to go back and to understand the choices made so that you can release yourself into a different way of being in the world. Otherwise, if you refuse, otherwise the ghosts still haunt. They have you by the throat, it seems to me. Thank you so much for, for, for this conversation. Um, we're going to turn to uh, audience questions. We have a lot of them, um, so I want to get through as many as possible. We are still taking audience questions. Uh, and again, uh, if you would like to submit a question, um, underneath the video screen, you will see a tab that says, ask a question. Click on ask a question and a text box will drop down. Uh, if you want your name to be mentioned, type it in the box uh, and then click send. You can also tweet to us uh, using the hashtag IQ2. So the first question that I have here is 
Why do you think there has been renewed interest in James Baldwin in recent years? Well, I think, you know, like I said earlier, I think we've caught up with him. I think he's, in the U.S. context, he is the most um, insightful critic we've ever produced with regards to race and democracy. To my mind, he's the inheritor of Emerson in this regard, Ralph Waldo Emerson in this regard. And so there is this kind of sense in which he understood and wrote clearly about the contradictions that rest at the heart of this experiment. And then secondly, um, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about Black Lives Matter is that it was explicitly queer, you know, transgender women were at the front of the movement. They were, they were guiding it. They were behind it. They were the thinkers. And Baldwin, make, it makes sense that they would reach for him as a resource to imagine a politics that reflects what they were doing and who they are. So I think it's a combination. A, Baldwin's right. He was right, obviously. And, and, and B, uh, that young folk who were out there argue, arguing, uh, it makes sense that we see not only a resurgence of Jimmy, but also a resurgence of Audre Lorde and others as resources uh, for, for black politics in this moment. We have a question that asks about the relationship between Baldwin and Ralph Ellison. So Baldwin's brilliant first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, was published in 1953, only a year after Ralph Ellison's extraordinary Invisible Man. What gave birth to these two almost coincidental remarkable novels? And were Ellison and Baldwin friends? And if so, did Ellison's inability to follow Invisible Man become a problem between them? No, I think the, the Ellison's in, you know, the manuscript uh, uh, being consumed by a fire, right, had profound psychological impl implications for Ellison. And remember, you know, we, we were looking for the second novel, but Ellison wrote two amazing uh, books of essays, Shadow and Act and Going to the Territory, that were just astonishing. Um, um, so I think it wasn't so much his failure. Uh, he wrote it. He actually wrote the novel. It, it was just burned. It was uh, lost in a fire. Um, and that had an impact. Um, let's say, I think the 50s represents this moment um, where uh, African-Americans are beginning to give voice to um, uh, a self-conception, a, a form of politics and a form of identity that will 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 shape the black freedom struggle of the mid-20th century. And oftentimes we think about this as just simply the result of, of World War II and veterans returning home. No, 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 no. This is actually the, the culmination of what we saw at the turn of the century when black folk are building independent schools, um, engaging in a variety of renaissances, not only just in Harlem, but in Pittsburgh, across the country. What we see are these young people who were educated in these schools suddenly becoming adults, right? And they are, they're changing the landscape. So this modernist masterpiece, which is Invisible Man, right, tries to do something very different. But we saw something uh, as experimental with Gene Toomer's cane, which came a little bit earlier, right? So, so I got to make this answer a little bit more succinct. So I think they emerge at a moment of, of extraordinary ferment, where, where the emergent is about, to, to use Raymond Williams's language, is about to make itself known in interesting sorts of ways. They're different in the sense that Baldwin, uh, Ellison, Baldwin and Ellison are initially thought of as allies in relation to Richard Wright. 
that writes kind of social realist novel, right, uh, uh, limits the the nature of the work of the black artist. And and Baldwin and Ellison are very critical of Wright's social realism. But then Baldwin gets accused in his later career by Ellison of succumbing to what Wright, what what they criticize Wright for. But Baldwin was trying to do something simultaneously. He wanted to give attention to the interior life of black folk while paying attention to the material conditions of black life. For him, it wasn't an either or. He was trying to, the, to deal with the complexity of who we are as human beings in light of the material conditions that, that impacted and constrained our lives. Ellison wasn't so much interested in the latter, it seems to me, by the end of his career. He's a status, he's, is an, this is a crude rendering, but it's more aestheticizing in, in the aestheticized approach. And he's also, he becomes a patriot in his defense of the Vietnam War. And by that time, you know, Baldwin doesn't want much to do with him. Um, that's a long-winded that's answer, all right. but I got a lot more to say <laughs> about that one. That's all right. Um, can you explain how uh, or why you feel betrayed by Obama's uh, presidency, if in fact you do? I don't feel necessarily betrayed by his presidency. I felt disappointed by it. You know, the moment that Mitch McConnell said that he wanted to make him a one-term president, the moment in which the Republicans reveal themselves for who they are, I was like, well, go big. Stop tinkering around the edges. And when he refused to do so, then he let me know that this is who he is. See, we need to understand the limitations of a certain kind of representational politics. That just because you have black and brown faces in high places, it doesn't mean that these people hold a certain kind of politics that's consistent with the least of these. And so, to my mind, it became clear, and I know I get in trouble for saying this, but Barack Obama is just simply a, you know, a black version of Clintonism. And to my mind, uh, Clintonism is the response to, to the age of Reagan. It bears the imprimatur of Reagan's assumptions. And if we are in a moment where the age of Reagan is dead or dying, uh, then that means not only the, the Republican Party, that is a reflection of that ideology, is dying. It also means that the, the, the Democratic Party that came into being to respond to it is dying as well. It's like trying to deal with, you know, Tony Blair's Labor Party. In re it's a creature of Thatcherism. And if you don't understand it as such, then you're going to miss something. Clintonism is a creature of Reaganism. And we need to understand it as such, to my mind. And Obama fits squarely within that formulation. In that sense, he's a disappointment. Even as symbolically, I celebrate how important he is. Because my son came of age with a black family in the White House, and that matters. But he also came of age with Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Breonna Jones, Ayanna Jane, you know, Ayanna Jones, Breonna Jones. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Those folks. I have, this is not an audience question, but I, I had to ask. I am assuming you see Biden as a continuation of Clintonism as well? Yeah, he had a chance to break loose, but, you know, the forces are what they are. And when we say Clintonism, we're talking about Democratic Leadership Conference. We're talking about the third way. We're talking about that, that version of the Democratic Party that wanted to break the whole of unions, break the whole of black voters, and move more towards the Silicon Valley and, and Wall Street and engage in triangulation as it were. 
So um, we have another question here uh, about his time in France. Um, so Baldwin left the U.S. to find a degree, a degree of safety in France. What do you think he would make of France today when far-right politicians enjoy such levels of support? Oh, he said something very, very powerful in No Name in the Street. He said he did not... He didn't. He did not trade. He did not intend to trade the American myth for the French one. Right. He understood what was happening to the Algerians in France while he was there. He understood what his passport meant for him, this blue American passport. But he also saw what was happening to the people with whom he lived, because Baldwin was dirt poor in Paris. He was dirt poor in, during his time in France. So he was. He was um, uh, in the shadows living with those who lived in the shadows in some ways. And he saw how the French police treated them. So this far-right um, drift, uh, not just simply Le Pen, but that, those who are to the right, running to the right of Le Pen, right? He would understand it for what it is. Um, and that is, again, uh, these deep-seated forces, ugly forces that, that are um, decidedly white supremacists and classist in their orientation. And call, he would call them for what I think, you know, I, I'm always hesitant to anticipate his words, but I think his words already condemned them, right? So he sees it then, he saw it then, and I think what he saw then is applicable now. What barriers did Baldwin's sexuality erect between him and key parts of the African-American uh, community during his lifetime and now, if any? Oh my God, it's so much. I struggle, this is one of the failures of the book. Right. I, I didn't quite. I wanted to be true to how Baldwin understood his sexuality. You know, it was like, this is my choice. It's my he has this very liberal pro public private distinction that he makes that this is my private life, my private choice, even though he was out. Um, but, you know, I remember inter interviewing Angela Davis for the book and she said and whenever she talks about Baldwin, she turns into this, you know, Beautiful little girl. She, I mean, it's so beautiful to, wa to watch. And she said, in so many ways, he was out there by himself. He was all alone. So his sexuality placed him, um, made him adjacent to the movement. People didn't quite know what to do with this effeminate writer, right? So King, Martin King in particular, wanted to keep him at arm's length, just as he eventually did with Bayard Rustin, who was accused of sodomy and, and, and literally had to be removed from the movement, as it were. Um, there is a sense in which Baldwin's sexuality, of course, places him in the crosshairs of, of, of black church folk in a lot of ways. But at the same time, the power of his witness, they could not dismiss. So he's, he's singular and unique and distinctive in a lot of ways, his voice is during this moment. And I think it's absolutely critical for him as an artist to inhabit that space because he could never be consumed by the movement. So even, you know, especially that hyper-masculinist turn of black power. So Eldridge Cleaver is going to say that, you know, he's just, he just wants to be, you know, he just wants to have sex with white men. That's, that's the way Eldridge described him in Soul on Ice, right? It, it hurt Jimmy deeply, profoundly. But you know what? When Eldridge uh, Cleaver uh, uh, was a fugitive and left for Algeria, the Panthers, was ra they raised money for him in the Black Panther paper. And the first donor on every issue is Jimmy. It's, it's a fascinating moment. Right. Or that moment, I have to tell this story really quick. I know I got to tell this story real quick. Or this moment in California, 
there has, there's a Black Panther event and, you know, the Panthers and, and us, uh, Ron Karinga's organization or, or intention, a Panther, an us guard has uh, an epileptic seizure and starts shooting in the air. Now, on the, on the stage is Betty Shabazz, the late widow, the widow of, of Malcolm X and her children. Now, as the guns go off, everybody disperses. They run. Here, this queer, effeminate black man says, but the babies. And he runs and he covers Malcolm X's children. Doesn't run off the stage. Doesn't run for cover. Instead, he runs and puts his body over them and shields them. I just have to tell. I love telling that story. And this is the, this is the first time I've heard that story. So thank you. Thank you for telling it. Um, <laughs> What would give you the most cause for hope for a better America? There's a lot of, of we didn't get to it that much, but there's a lot of um, the final chapters of the book that are sort of moving in this direction of thinking about uh, what you often describe as a new America. So what would give you um, cause for hope in that regard? Well, you know, my, I'm always remembered, my, my notion of hope is not Penglossian optimism, right? It's a hope that is, uh, uh, it's a hope that is, is blue-soaked. Right. It's what it's it's one of my favorite phrases coming out of Du Bois's of the passing of the firstborn in the souls of black folk. It's a hope not hopeless, but unhopeful. Right. It's a hope that gets me up in the morning. Baldwin would say we have to invent hope every day. And if you're inventing hope every day, that means you're beating back despair every day. Um, so here I want to invoke uh, one of my intellectual heroes, Stuart Hall, and the way he talked taught taught me about the conjunctural moment. Every conjunctural moment is a moment of crisis and possibility. This conjunctural moment is revealing the bankruptcy of a particular ideology, whether we call it Reaganism or whether we call it neoliberalism. It is clear that this ideology has revealed itself to be bankrupt. Now, the question is, what will replace it? What will, what will emerge? And what we see among young folk in particular across the globe, as well as in the United States, is that young folk know that know, know the, this country in particular is broken. And they're reaching for new vocabularies to imagine the country otherwise, but some are reaching for old vocabularies. Some are reaching for the language of authoritarianism, the language of fascism. They want order in the midst of the chaos. Others are reaching for a different kind of language that is rooted in green, you know, a green politics rooted in much more progressive and the like. So hope is found in the crisis, because the crisis brings with it a moment of possibility. We are on the cusp of a new world being born. The question is, will we be better midwives? That's the question. Claire asks a related question, um, and, and she asks, um, are things ever going to change? And then in particular, what will it take for whiteness to relinquish itself and understand that losing its place at the top of its own imaginary pyramid isn't a loss at all? Will we ever face the lie? As long as human bring, as long as we're breathing, as long as human beings are breathing, we have a chance. We have to recognize, as Baldwin, to paraphrase Jimmy, we have to recognize that we're we're complex creatures, as he would put it, we're sons of bitches, as he put it, but we're also miracles. And if we show up, there's a chance for a miracle. So we have to keep fighting for the new Jerusalem, as it were. What will happen? Well, I don't know. It, I'm beginning to, we have to figure out a way 
to disrupt the intimacies of the intimacy of our hatreds. And this is not just simply a kind of sentimental call for integration or something like that, but there's something about how deeply segregated we are that allows for hatred to fester and grow in those intimate spaces. We have to figure out how to disrupt this. At the, we got to do it at the level of law, at the level of policy, to create the conditions under which we can no longer be walking mysteries to each other. Right? And I, I don't know if that will happen, but I have to fundamental, fundamentally believe that it can happen. Otherwise, I would drink too much Irish whiskey. There's uh, two more questions. One, um, one that I think will be relatively quick, but it's something that um, you've mentioned early on, so I wanted to be sure we got to it. Can you explain a little bit more about why Baldwin's archives are out of bounds for so long? Was that his decision? Um, and if there is, do you know if there is a biographer lined up, if not you? I know there's some, there, there are folks who are writing biographies. Hilton, Hilton, Hilton Owls is writing one. Uh, he has access to the papers in ways that many of us don't. But it's the family who's been, they've embargoed it as, you know, so there are certain papers at the Schomburg in New York City uh, that you just can't get access to. And the family's, at, and the family's behind that. And then the final question um, is, this person says, fantastic conversation. Apart from James Baldwin, who are your intellectual heroes? That's why I had to end here. <laughs> it varies. You know, it all depends on what day you're talking to me. But Toni Morrison is one. Uh, John Dewey is another. Cornell West is another. Stuart Hall is another. Um, all of these people um, offer me languages to understand the moment. But on another day, you will get a different list. Tony would stay on that list, though. Tony Morrison would stay on that list. I'll have to catch you on another day then. I want to hear the other. I want to hear the other <laughs> list. <laughs> My thanks to Eddie, to our audience, and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hull. If you'd like to find out about everything coming up on Intelligence Squared, do sign up to our newsletter over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.